0: Welcome to the Courageous Entrepreneur Show. This is the show that shares information and inspiration to help you break free from self-doubt, limiting beliefs, and disempowering patterns and break through to create the thriving, successful business life you dream of and deserve. I'm your host, Winnie Anderson. I interview entrepreneurs who've overcome amazing challenges to create success on their terms and experts who share insight and practical information that when you take action on it can help you pass your blocks and help you move forward with courage, confidence, and clarity. The show is available in both video and audio formats on a variety of platforms including iTunes, and on YouTube, as well as on my website at winnieanderson.com. You know, I often think of a famous quote by Mother Teresa. It goes, I know God wouldn't give me anything that I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. I think that's an awesome quote. And in today's episode, you're going to hear from speaker and coach Mark Baker, who will share his experiences of surviving an abusive childhood and winding up homeless to creating the financially and emotionally abundant life he now enjoys. Mark shares tips on getting past limiting beliefs and the one fact about those beliefs that I don't think you'll hear from anybody else. He shares the key technique that he used that is the same one that top athletes and performers share with politicians and business leaders to produce the outcome that they want. And he'll also talk about what's missing from most positive thinking. And he'll share lots more tips and insight. Mark talks about his own bout with cancer. And I want to make clear that we're not providing medical advice. So if you suspect that you're not well, You want to seek professional help. With that said, stick around all the way to the end, and I'll share your reflection exercise and action step for this episode. All right, so welcome, Mark. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today from all the way across the pond. And uh, we're going to just dive right in so we can use your time well and and use our, our listeners' time well. So I know that you are now a well-paid speaker. You talk about mindset, selling, and achieving your goals. But you aren't always the fabulously successful salesperson, right, that you help other people to be. And I know that, um, that you had some issues that you wrestled with. But can you talk about what led you to to reach the point where you are now, where you're a speaker and and coach and and motivator to others.
1: You no, know, absolutely. I mean, first off, I, I'd like to start by saying, as bad as things were in my environment when I was growing up, I'm absolutely very grateful for them, and I was blessed to to have that experience. Although I'd rather have got to where I am without that. meant
0: me <laughs> <That's laughs> it,
1: it wasn't a choice, you know. Right. But ha- had I not been through what I went through then I wouldn't be here chatting with you today because it put me on this path a path I would never have otherwise been on um, I was physically and mentally abused by my father from from a young age right up until I was 20 and it wasn't the physical abuse that actually made the difference to me it was it was the psychological abuse because what they thought I didn't realize at the time but what they formed in me was limiting beliefs and I had the worst kind which were hopelessness helplessness and worthlessness and which is very common in in abuse victims but I was a very ambitious, I have no idea where this ambition came from because my father wasn't an ambitious man at all, in fact he didn't really want to do anything, but I had this driving desire within me to become successful, and uh, I just started reading books, now my first exposure it was really, really fascinating to self-help because uh, I was always told, um, I was very curious as a child, which got me into an awful lot of trouble, and um, my gran used to say things like, whatever you do, don't go in the loft. Which, um, which piqued my curiosity, so I, mean, I had to go into the loft. <laughs> <laughs> so one day she grabbed her coat and went to the corner shop, and as soon as she did, I went up the stairs, snuck up the little stairwell to the attic, and I, and I went in there. And there were these two little roof skylights which shone these two beams of light, and I always had this big imagination, and I just imagined that these lights were searching for something. So I walked in there, and there was all boxes of clothes and what have you. There was a bookcase that ran down the entire side of, of the attic, And I walked along, and I picked up a couple of books, and they were all books about flowers and Sunday school church books awarded to my grandparents or their children growing up. And I just put them back, and I meandered along, running my hand along the wall, and I heard this thud. And I was immediately terrified because I thought I'd been caught, Uh, but I, I hadn't. What had actually happened was this book had dropped out when I was running my hands along the bookcase, and I went to pick it up. And I read the cover and I thought the cover the title of the book was really, really stupid because it was a book called Wake Up and Live by a lady called Dorothea Brand. And I immediately reasoned, I thought, what a ridiculous title for a book, Wake Up and Live. Surely if you're alive, you're awake. <laughs> <laughs> so I started reading this book and this woman, had, she was an author, but over 20 years, she had only written a short story and a handful of articles. So, uh, But she'd realized reading this book, it posed this question, what one great thing would you dare to attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? And she realized that her life had been blighted by these limiting beliefs. And then immediately, within a very short space of time, she'd written all of these, these books and started consulting with people around the world. And, and I just sat there. And I, was, I actually had to hold the book on the floor with both hands because the, I was shaking so much with excitement. And then I, my dad walked in behind me. And I wasn't actually afraid. I'd normally be afraid when I saw him. And I just jumped up, and I started to tell him about all my hopes and plans for the future. And this book said I could be anything I want. And I'll never forget what he said to me that day. He says, you're a dreamer. He said, you'll never be anything. He says, let me promise you this. As long as you live, you'll never be anybody, and you'll never achieve anything of value. He said, I hate you, and I always have. And he prized the book out of my hand and threw it along the floor. And I just turned to watch the book sliding along the floor as if to psychologically take note of where the book was so I could come back and get it. And I was walking down the stairs, and I wasn't thinking about his words as much as they'd made my heart feel really heavy. I used to get these overwhelming pains in my heart with the things that he did. But I I had this pain in my heart, but this overriding feeling in my mind was, can I really be anything? Surely there must be something that a 12-year-old boy can do. And that was where my journey into personal development actually began.
0: Wow. What an incredible story! And unfortunately, so much of that I think resonates with so many of us who have experienced that kind of emotional and psychological abuse. My mother told me the same things basically, uh, and on a regular basis as well and And you know the, that issue of the book. I think is really powerful. I was just traveling. I went to a a workshop in California, and I stayed with a girlfriend who was attending the same workshop, and I was telling her my story of abuse, and that I found myself at about eight years old wandering in the psychology section of the library because I really believed that there, I don't know how I had this belief, but I had this belief that the answer was in a book. Mm. Somehow, I don't know where I would get this from, but and I get choked up thinking about it, obviously. Somehow the answer is in a book, and I just needed to find it.
1: I always believe that. It's absolutely true. It is true.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's incredible, and I agree with you that, that the abuse is somehow, you know, it, may, it did make you, it made us who we are today, and can you talk a little bit about how you came to that conclusion? It's, it, you know, naturally you would like that gift in a different box. <laughs> we wish that we hadn't had to go through it to be the people who we are, but a lot of people get stuck along that journey to go from surviving to actually thriving. Can you talk a little bit about was there any one thing that made you say he's wrong other than the book? He's wrong, I know I can do something or was well, it really the book that was your spark?
1: Well you know there was the book was a significant part of it, but it was to get a lot worse before it got better. And there were things that were happening. In, I mean, my parents actually got divorced on my 18th birthday, which was which was quite traumatic because my mum picked me up from work and we were going to live somewhere else. And we drove right out the car park instead of turning left towards home. And I always remember looking back at the road we should have gone down to go home. And I just had this real heavy heart because, as much as it was a release from what had happened or what was happening, that was never going to happen anymore. Um, it felt like there had been a death in the family; something had ended. But then, when I say things went from from bad to worse, uh, I was, you know, I I had to leave the home where we moved into, with the man who became my stepdad, who we became. We had a wonderful relationship in the end, but he didn't really want us there. He inherited to us, so he didn't want us. My brother was much younger than me; he was about four years, and I was over eighteen. So I was technically I could live. And I got home one night, and um, and we had this massive row with my brother. So he came up the stairs he wanted to throw my brother out but he couldn't so he threw me out so i was actually homeless i was living in a car i was living at the sleeping at the beach um but i was a trainee manager of a, of a supermarket and i was I had this burning ambition within me so um i was washing i was actually getting into the ocean in the morning to have a wash i had this system that worked really well um i used to start the car motor to warm the car up i'd jump in the sea for a wash when i came back i'd feel the bonnet the bonnet of the car would be hot I'd get my shirt and I'd iron my shirt on the hot bonnet of the car. So I had this system, this crazy system to reflect the life that I was leading. And then I used to go to work in my suit and, and be this trainee manager. So you know how that I pulled that off at that age when I look back is is bizarre. Um, but then um, shortly after that I kind of went off the rails. I got into groups with guys that were like not really good people. And one of these guys I met at a nightclub once, and he came with these two girls. And one was a massive big girl with a mohican, and then the other one was a pretty girl who was a year older than me. And I fell in love with her immediately. But I didn't really fall in love. I was so used to everything being taken away from me, I had to tie everything down so it wouldn't be taken away. And But unbeknownst to me, she was actually out on bail. She had a baby, and she was living with this man, and, and they'd actually killed the baby. Um, oh, which, and me, being a person that absolutely loves children, uh, this actually gave me a partial breakdown. And um, when, the, when the newspaper came out and I, I saw the headline and it said "baby killers get five and a half and six years," I just literally broke down. And I went down to the side of the ocean, and um, I was cursing God for what, you know why, why, because there didn't seem to be any release from this life whatsoever. And as I put my hand down, I picked up this shard of glass, and I and I self-harmed with it. Uh, I went to my mother's house, and she called the doctor. I was in shock, and he said to me, All "Right, we have to, we have to, you have to go to hospital." You know either you go or or I put you there so I went there and it was horrendous experience it was uh, but I had this all I could think about was at one side of my mind I was focusing on these dreams and goals I had for the future and then I I went in I've actually became assistant manager of the shop I was the youngest manager in in the history of the shop at at 21 years of age this is a couple of years rolling on and I thought well you know this isn't it there's more to it than this then I got into insurance and, and then I moved from there but the realization was was that through reading books, I, re- I picked up this book one day, another book, and it was talking about limiting beliefs. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I was actually reading this book and I thought, they're talking about me. This book is actually directed at me. I thought I was reading about myself. So I started to study limiting beliefs and I started to understand about hopelessness, helplessness, worthlessness, what have you. And I started to, they say we teach what we need to learn you know, which was very much the case with me. And I've spent 20 odd years now studying this with, with massive positive effects for other people. But again, it's, it's a journey that I've gone on only because I needed to get myself out of the place where I was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the true hero's journey, right? That we start out in one place and we go through these horrible experiences. And then so many of us are then inspired to help the people who are still on that trail to try to navigate it and and deal with it. Yeah, wow, your story is incredibly powerful. Um, so you talked about it or heard you in another interview where you talked about how that first time when you were in insurance sales that you came to the realization that there was something inside of you that was holding you back. You said you were a terrible salesperson and and. That that is where I, I reached myself as well. Can you talk about what was it? I know these feelings of of helplessness and hopelessness probably impact it. But can you talk a little bit about that? What when you had that epiphany that it's something inside me that I need to fix? How did you come to that conclusion?
1: Well, it was the insurance career that really made me realize that I had problems because okay. it was commission only job and it was cold calling strangers on the telephone what have you so I, I really you could say I was a glutton for punishment because there I was trying to deal with the worst rejection I would had my entire life and here I was on the telephone cold calling people inviting rejection <laughs> on a daily basis so right it's like, it's like I probably took on the worst possible job for me. but that that was the insurance career my life insurance career is what really liberated me because I dabbled I'd learned about limiting beliefs but because I'd had nothing to measure it against um, I didn't really know where I was, but it was when I started cold calling for an insurance company that I actually realized what, realized what a flawed human being that I really was. And I never forget, and I was, I've still got this briefcase packed of these cold calling sheets, and, if I, and now and again, I get them out, and it's quite depressing to look at, because you've got to go through pages and pages before you get an appointment, and um, I remember this one, I, I called this vicar one day to talk about insurance, and he said, I'm okay, you don't need to call me, he says, um, the Lord will provide for me, and I said, okay, didn't know how to answer that one, and then years later, when I became a great salesman, I would have said, well, God is providing for you, because he sent me, <laughs> <Exactly> <laughs> he right. <laughs> which is what I would have said. But um, I was actually making cold calls, and I remember this day like it was yesterday, and I was so embarrassed I could feel my face was on fire and glowing. And all the men in the office came around and mocked me, and they put all their hands around my face like they were warming their hands on the fire. And it was in that moment that I realized how bad I was. you know. And even after I got my first insurance appointment, I went to this first appointment of this house, and I was just about to knock on the door, and I froze, and it was pouring with rain. And I sat there rooted to the spot for about 20 minutes, and it wasn't until I sneezed and caught a cold that I actually shook myself out of this. And then I just turned around and went. Um, but it was it was that situation that actually made me realise that because you, because being a direct salesperson, you have to really be a well-rounded individual. You need to be fantastic communication, fantastic mm-hmm. at marketing, fantastic at putting yourself out there. And these were all things that I really wasn't. At the same time, I was absolutely determined to be successful, and I started with 29 people. And by the end of six months, there was only me left. And I don't know whether that was because I was too stubborn to leave, or, or <laughs> there was something in me. But I was the only one left after after, um, after the six seven months. The only one left. But then, I'm glad you've touched on this because I had the biggest breakthrough of my life came shortly after because. I was thinking, I've learned about limiting beliefs. I know how to believe in myself now. I'd removed all of the barriers that said I couldn't do this. You know, the little voice inside you said, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I had it really bad. I mean, I live on a small island uh, of Jersey and Channel Islands, which is 14 miles off the coast of France, so we're surrounded by the ocean. And I remember I used to surf a lot, um, but I used, to, I used to feel I shouldn't be there. So I'd go right to the edge of the pack of the people that, that were in the ocean ready to surf and I'd sit as far away from them as I could because I literally was waiting for someone to paddle up to me and say you shouldn't be here because I didn't feel I was entitled to be on God's ocean and ironically one day it actually happened because we attract these things into our life you know people pick up on you and uh, this guy actually paddled over to me and asked me to get out of the sea and I just left <laughs> so it just reaffirmed the doubts that I had but then I went to bed one night and um, I was actually lying there thinking, why am I not acting? I've removed these beliefs from my life, but I'm still procrastinating. Right. Because I actually became a master procrastinator, Because, and I'll go back slightly first. Now, what actually happened was I used to, when I was about 10, 11 years of age, I decided that my life would be fine when I was 20. Um, so I just wanted to get through the days as quickly as I could to get to 20 because life was a nightmare. So I used to get to bed at 6.30 at night to sleep and get rid of another day, which formed the habit of being this profound procrastinator. I discovered something purely by accident, and it was visualization, and I used to have this dream every single night. um, I used to go to bed dreaming this, and created this in my mind, this safe place that I wanted to get to, and it was of this bedroom, and there was this beautiful woman lying in the bed with her dark, wavy hair spread across the pillow, and next to her was this little toddler, another girl with her arms flailed behind her head asleep, and then next to them was a cot with this other little blonde baby asleep with this like tuft of hair on her head, and she was sucking on a soother. And, um, I used to, and I used to go to bed having this, this vision every single night. But the strange thing was, this room was in an orange glow. There was this orange glow in this room. And I don't know why. had no idea why whatsoever. And then years and years went by. And then one night I was out selling life insurance to two aging hippies. And I was there at 7 o'clock in the evening. And um, they were smoking hash all evening. And normally I'd get <laughs> irritated by the process being so drawn out. But... As, the, as in the smoke-filled room, I was getting more and more relaxed, and I had no idea why. <laughs> and then eventually the sale was made, and I went home. I got home. I got changed, changed in the bathroom. Now, this is years later now. I'm 29 years of age. And I went to open the bedroom door, and I just had this feeling consume my body. And every hair on my body stood up on end, and I began to weep. And I began to shake uncontrollably, and I had no idea why. And I was thinking, what's going on here? And I looked into the room, and I could see this beautiful woman, with long wavy black hair waved across the pillow. Next to her was a little toddler girl with her arms behind her head. And next to them in a cot was this little blonde baby sucking on a dummy with this little palm tree tuft of hair sticking out of her head. And what had happened, she'd lost all her baby hair and this little tuft was the only thing that remained on top. And the room was bathed in an orange glow. And it was the orange glow that had, Brought this vision back to me because what had happened was my wife had been out that day. I'd, I'd been at work all day and all night, so I didn't know. But she'd been out that day, and she'd bought this soft glow orange lamp, so that I would find my way into the room without kicking the cot and kicking the bed and waking everybody up. Um, and it had brought the vision back to me. So I'd seen everybody in this orange glow. But, it, but the thing was, it wasn't similar to what I'd imagined from the age of 10, 11 years of age. And I visualised this every single night of my life till I was about eighteen, till my parents got divorced. It was exactly as I had imagined, all of those years ago. So there's something very, very powerful in visualization. It really does work, yeah. um, and it's something I could talk about all day about, but we haven't got time to do that today. Yeah. But going back, you know, this, this significant change that I wanted to tell you about was that I went to bed and I asked myself, why am I not, why am I procrastinating? Because I've become this massive procrastinator, which was the point of the story. And for several nights, I'd asked myself this question, now again, I didn't realise I was actually engaging in a in a process because because as you're going off to sleep, your brain cycles slow down. Right. I was talking to my subconscious mind without any interference from the conscious mind because because that's the state of mind that you're in. That's yep. how hypnotherapists the get to us. And I asked myself this question every single night. Nothing happened for a few days. I was expecting anything to happen because I had no idea what I was doing. And then what happened was on about the sixth or seventh night, I sat bolt upright in bed and I'd had this dream. And I used to race motorcycles from the age of twelve, and so I had this. This dream, I'm sitting on the starting line at 12 years of age, and there's this five second board that comes up in front of you, the riders, to say there's five seconds before the tapes go. But it was like on a continual loop, and it would go, the five second board would come up, then we'd be revving our bikes, then the five second board would come up again, and it was just over and over again. And I Lied back down in frustration, fell asleep, and then the dream came back again. And I sat bolt right up in bed, and my wife's terrified next to me because I'm jumping bolt upright in bed. I'm pulling the covers off her. She doesn't know what's going on. And then it suddenly occurred to me that I'd actually discovered something quite remarkable because I was terrified when I used to race. I always wanted to race. But when I, after lunch, when everyone's getting ready to go and they're putting their helmets on and the bikes are firing up, I used to get so distressed at the thought of racing because you've got 40 bikes side by side flat out on loose ground into a corner that can only take three bites, where you can literally break your neck in the first 30 seconds of the race. So I used to be throwing up and be sick behind the bush before the race started. But in the dream, it made me realize that when the second board came up, I was no longer afraid because you've got to focus on the task at hand. So then you've got to anticipate the tapes. Five, four, three, two, one, go. And if you get it right, you beat everybody to the first corner. If not, you're in the middle of it. Now, what I realized was all of a sudden I just had this aha moment that what the dream was trying, trying to tell me. And what it was is I had these flashbacks. you ever seen a movie where like a detective movie or something, and he's trying to solve what's happened to someone, and then all of these scenes pass from the movie flash mm-hmm. up, and he connects the dots, and he knows exactly what's happened, and it all makes sense to him. Well, this was happening to me, and I was having all these flashbacks of all these moments, and the flashbacks of the moments were of all the moments where I'd been successful and all the moments that I'd failed, and the connection was that when I'd acted within five seconds, everything worked. I might not necessarily succeed, but I did it. Things that I'd normally put off for a week whatever. I'll give you an example. When I, when I was in insurance, I used to go into work in the evenings. I'd drive across the island. I'd sit at my boss's desk, and I'd sit there, and I'd have to write. and have to make phone calls, That'd because I hated rejection. So I'd make all these excuses. So I'd say, well, I'd better get another pen in case this one runs out. Better get a glass of water, just in case my mouth goes dry. Or oh, my desk is untidy. The door was close of the desk. I couldn't even see it. Better tidy the desk. You can't call people from an untidy desk. And then the stories would go on and on and on. Then it was eight o'clock. Too late to call anybody. I'll do it tomorrow. You know, now these are avoidance tactics. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize what was going on. But then I realized, in this aha moment, that when I acted within the five seconds, I did them. So the next day I went into work instead of procrastinating, I'd sit there and the stories were just about to start coming in as to why I couldn't do this and this needed to be tidied first. And I just went, you know what? Five, four, three, two, one. Picked up the phone, and the most miraculous thing happened: that within nine months I became one of the top salespeople in the world from my spare bedroom because I was working for a company but I was working mostly from home in a a bedroom so small that if I stretched I used to bang my knuckles on on each of the walls it was that small and I went from struggling for seven years to being one of the top 1% in in, there's actually an organization called the Million Dollar Roundtable and the qualification was called Top of the Table so I've actually got verification that I achieved this but top 1% in the world and it took me just nine months to get there after seven months seven years sorry of floundering and not actually getting anywhere So, you know, that's one thing I wanted to share with you on this interview is that that if you just every time you find yourself putting things off, stop, count from five to one and go and take action. But you need to be aware of something. It doesn't make it any easier. It just gets (laughs) it done because, you know, But once you get into it, you get into flow and then you, you get into the law of habit and you begin to and habit takes over. But you have to get to the stage where it's a habit first. and This actually helps you get there.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's outstanding, and it's brilliant. It's a great illustration. So we've got, first of all, the self-awareness that you're not getting what you want, the belief that there would be something greater, this visualization that you were constantly focusing on, asking yourself the big questions right, bef- right before you go to sleep, and then this technique to really get yourself laser-focused and taking action, and I think that, you know, we talk a lot about, there's a lot of conversation out about confidence, and but I think courage has to come before confidence, and being able to take that action, it's then, in you know, you create this self-perpetuating experience where I was able to do that, and I didn't die, I, and the person didn't say, you know, they didn't hate me. They didn't hang up on me, and that then continues to build that confidence muscle. So I, I do think that it requires just being able to leap first and then building up. Confidence comes from action you've already taken.
1: Yeah, Courage well, exactly right. for first. You, you know, the thing is as, as well, you know, I used to think I was a coward because I was afraid. But then I realized that courage is acting in spite of fear, Yes. and not, not feeling fear, because if you're not afraid, it doesn't take any courage. You know, courage is, you can only be courageous if you're, if you're in fear to begin with. Yeah. So that's, that's the first part of it. But the other part of it, which you've touched on there, is confidence. And people write books about confidence, but I don't think it's really that, com- that complicated because confidence comes from doing. So if you can just get yourself to act and you keep acting, the confidence will come as you develop the skill. So really confidence is nothing more than repeating an action And becoming good at it, which in turn generates the confidence within you. So it's not that complicated. It's doing something so you become good at it. None of us ever do it were born to do anything. We've had to learn everything. And the only way confidence comes is by doing it. It's the art of acting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Confidence coach Jules Wyman, who is in London, she talks about how when you are feeling lack of confidence, remember these past experiences. You've already done some things which were probably pretty amazing, and you can draw on that to build the confidence to then get the courage to take that next action. So, yeah, think of it as kind of a loop that we get into, but definitely courage is is one. And I think you're right about this issue of fear. I remember hearing somebody talk about the fear of public speaking. This was decades ago, and she talked about how people get butterflies in their stomach, and the point is not to make the butterflies disappear. The point is, as she said, to get them to fly in formation, and I thought that was such a great visual of exactly what it is because you want a little bit of an edge, right? If you're completely relaxed, you're probably not very focused, Uh, and you run the risk of you know screwing up but it's that little bit of tension that enables you to I think really perform with excellence so that's really outstanding now can you talk about then how did you make this shift from this really wildly successful salesperson to now your your role as a mentor a coach and a speaker for others who are along this path,
1: yeah, happy to do that. I mean, I—I I was in insu- the thing was I went to my first seminar. It was an insurance convention in 1994. I'd never been to a convention before in my life, and it was in London in England. And it was a two-day convention, and I sat there watching the speakers, and I just suddenly felt this is what I needed to be doing. Um, but I still was riddled with limiting beliefs, and and it took me actually ten years to start speaking. Uh, one thing I used to do to try and be healthy was I used to drink a pint of water before I went to bed and a pint of water when I got up. But in, inevitably, drinking a pint of water before you go to bed means that you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And I had to stop drinking the water because I used to beat myself up so badly on the way to the bathroom and back that I couldn't sleep by the time I made it back to bed. So I'd be, all I wanted to be was a speaker. It consumed my every waking moment. But but I had this belief I couldn't do it so I'd get up in the middle of the night, I'd walk to the bathroom and this little voice inside my head would be saying, who wants to speak to you? What have you possibly got to say that would be of any value to anybody? So I'd get back into bed and then I would just, this would ruminate in my mind so I had to the only way I could stop that was by stopping drinking the water.
0: So I think you, you said something and I was just reaching for a, a notepad to, to jot it down because I thought it was so powerful and you've mentioned this a couple of times so the limiting beliefs, they were really there all along, and you would work to achieve a level of success. And then some new, new beliefs or maybe old beliefs would come, you know, creeping out of the closet there to come back and, and pull you, to hold you back from making that next big leap. And I think that's an important issue. So many of us, think that well if i just read this book or i take this seminar or i i go to this conference or whatever i will fix those limiting beliefs they'll be gone forever and the sky's the limit for me and i think this issue of that you know it's just like problems never go away right you just have different types yeah. of problems as you as Absolutely. you progress and i think this is this issue is a big one to let people know don't be surprised if if new limiting beliefs appear or if the old ones pop up, and be ready to just recognize it as a part of your growth. Do you do you agree with that, or or you know what what do you have to say about that for people?
1: I do agree with that, but it's something that that took me a long time to learn. I'm glad you touched on that because I'd like to save people a lot of frustration because I've got thousands of books, literally thousands of books. I mean, I, I, they go right around my office and they're too deep. You know, I, I must, there must be 3,000 books there. And the vast majority of books are, at best, not very good. And, and you'll read them and you'll get ideas. But, and it works exactly the same when you go to a seminar. You can spend a whole week in a seminar taking copious notes for a whole week. And then you get to the end of the week and you've got three notepads of notes and the vast majority of people never ever look at those notes ever again and but the thing is is it's because most of what you read is irrelevant to your situation and belief is the driving force behind everything that happens in your life so it doesn't matter what else you're studying you've got to start with the basics Now, belief or limiting beliefs as we're talking about in this conversation is is the driving force of your entire life and if you don't get your beliefs in place um, nothing will work for you now, we're programmed with beliefs all of our life, but the biggest period that we're programmed with beliefs is from birth to 8-7. Mm-hmm. It's actually called the imprint period, and it's widely acknowledged that this is the case. The Jesuits once said, if you give me the child at birth and I return to him to you at 7, I will return the man to you. And what they were saying was, is that we will program the person that he's going to be by what we put into his belief system between 0 and 7. Now, unfortunately for everybody else, it's kind of ad hoc because you're just inheriting your parents beliefs it's not deliberate because they're not even aware of the concept it's not their fault you know they've never been educated about beliefs, so you're just getting hand-me-down beliefs that have been from generations that may be restricted So, what's indoctrinated into you as a child then you, you've got really no hope at all so driving force the driving force is belief and you have to get that right before you move on to anything else
0: yeah yeah I I really agree with you and uh, that was a long time coming for me as well because I thought oh I've dealt with this and then it's just a variation on a theme as you make that next level of of the success that you want so yeah I think that those are really great there are so many quotable things that you that you just said in there and I think that that preparing people for that don't be surprised when you start feeling the resistance and things like that and but you dealt it to get this far now it's just tightening your belt and and making those changes again so really great so I know that you know, you were having this great career and things were going along really well and then you got sick right I so think. can you can you talk about how that I mean, that has to be the most terrifying challenge of all when you really feel your life is in jeopardy. Can you talk about, um, and I'm sure at this point you can see the positives, so the positives and then you know, how did you manage to deal with that initially to keep going forward?
1: Okay, well, I mean, the interesting part is that it's almost as if everything that happened in my life led to this.
0: (laughs) Isn't it funny how that works out? Yeah, it
1: is, and it was even, even the abuse because, because the abuse put me on the journey of personal development, which got me right. doing this, which is why I'm talking to you today. But it actually, what I studied actually saved my life. And I don't say that lightly. It literally saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't feeling well going back five years ago. And um, I'd been misdiagnosed by my doctor for an entire year. I'd go into my doctor and say, I feel like I've been poisoned from head to toe. He'd say, well, you would do your stress. I said, "Well, I'm getting these drenching night sweats twice a night." He said, "Well, you would do. You're stressed." Well, I've lost three stone in weight. Well, you would do. You're stressed. And this went on for a whole year. Mm. Then I had the physical symptom um, that I had an ache in my one of my testicles, and he examined me and said, "Oh, and it shrunk to the size of a pee and gone rock hard." Still, he said it's nothing. Um, he said, "We'll put you down for a scan, but I won't put it down as urgent because um, I don't think it is." So I had to wait another two months for a scan, and I went to the scan and then I was misdiagnosed again I was actually told I had a testicular, infection, a testicular infection and given a six-month course of antibiotics had I taken them at their word I'd be dead because a six-month antibiotics uh, I wouldn't have lived to last to the end of the prescription because I'd actually had, I actually had cancer and the cancer I had was so aggressive it was supposed to be diagnosed and treated within four to six weeks and here I was a year later with the doctor Waiting two months for a scan. Now it's 14 months down the road. Then I'm given antibiotics. If I'd have taken the course of antibiotics, it would have been, you know, uh, 20 months. I wouldn't have lived 20 months of what I had. So I just had this gut feeling. So I did. I broke the cardinal rule. I went uh, and Googled my symptoms, which, they said, which we must never do, because <laughs> you read your I've got everything. And I've got everything, and I'm dead already, and I didn't even know. <laughs> right. um, but I, what I did was the first thing I came onto was this forum, and this guy had posted exactly the same symptoms as me. And I was looking at this, and I thought, wow, this is exactly what, I, what I've got. you know, And uh, he'd been misdiagnosed as well. And I was just about to click off because there was no information on there, just symptoms the same. And just as I was about to press the button to come off um, this forum, this doctor answered in that instant and the doctor said I don't like the sound of what you've got I think you've been misdiagnosed what I want you to do is go into your local accident and emergency department don't tell them anything otherwise they'll say you're a hypochondriac you've already been diagnosed go and take your tablets so that's what I did next day I went to the hospital and I, and I went to the A&E department and I said look I've got an ache down there they said come in they said have you seen anybody I said no I said "I've just noticed it so this young doctor Trainee doctor, 22 years of age, examined me. said, oh, your lymph nodes are up. I'm just going to get the oncology surgeon. I had no idea oncology meant cancer, um, just as well, really, because it's always a word that we're all afraid of. Uh, The surgeon came down, examined me. didn't say anything apart from come and see me on Monday in in my office, which I did. And I was there with my wife, and he said, you've got a tumor. He said, we need to operate immediately. Um, So bearing in mind, I'm just supposed to be starting antibiotics. So he operated on the Saturday, came to see me post-op and said, look, I've got everything, 99% certain you've got nothing to worry about whatsoever. Um, We've just got to do uh, a biopsy in Southampton in the UK, come back in two weeks. Went back two weeks later, saw a different doctor. And as I walked in with my wife, he's putting on his coat and getting his case ready to walk out the door. And he said, bad news, Mr. Baker, you've got lymphoma. No idea what lymphoma was, never heard of it before in my life. And I said, is, is that curable? And he said, couldn't tell you, got my field, put his coat on, walked out the door and left us sitting there in shock. So we w- went back home. I had no idea whether I had weeks to live at this stage because I hadn't been told anything. I started to suffocate. First time in my life I'd ever had a panic attack. I had no idea what a panic attack was. So I, I ran outside to breathe, still couldn't breathe tore all my clothes off, and I'm standing there in my boxer shorts, and I turned around and saw my wife holding her her hands to her face, sobbing her heart out, and I didn't know what to do, I didn't know what to do, and I had to get on the the red-eye flight the next morning to go and get my daughter from college, now my oldest daughter, Chloe, was always very intuitive, and if my wife couldn't sleep or there was something troubling her, you'd hear my daughter jump out of bed, a little patter of feet, she'd march across the landing, jump into bed, and hug her mum. She didn't know why, but we thought, oh, this is crazy, like, you know. But here we were driving down the motorway to get her car to the boat to come home, and she started to weep. And I said, what's the matter, baby? She says, um, Dad, are you going to die? Have you got cancer? I hadn't even told her I wasn't well, so it, she just had this intuitive feeling. So we just pulled up at the side of the road and just hugged each other, and I promised her I wasn't going anywhere. I, sh- I probably shouldn't have made that promise, but I had, no, I had no idea. I didn't even know what I had, let not know anything else. So I eventually got to speak to the doctor in the UK, and he apologized and said it was terrible the way I'd been treated. He says, look, but don't worry, he says, if this has been caught in time, the prognosis is good. He said, how long have you had it? And I said, well, 14 months, and it went very quiet on the telephone. He said, we'll do our best. So we went there. But I I studied beliefs for so long, and I'd studied this doctor called, called Dr. Henry Beecher, and he said your belief and your expectation as to whether you will – overcome the illness. It's the biggest factor, depending on whether you will survive or not. So I've been studying this. So I, I immediately did this. And then I'd also read these studies on Dr. Andrew Wild, who'd done studies on people that were given sedatives and told they were stimulants and how they'd acted like they were sedated when they were taking stimulants and vice versa. And, and our minds are so powerful, they can actually override the effects of drugs. But they can also actually enhance the drugs. So your expectation and belief in how well these drugs are going to work can actually dramatically improve the drugs and help you survive and get over the illness. Now, I got my level of belief so high that I was going to survive that it never even crossed my mind that death was a possibility, when in reality, because of the late diagnosis, death was actually a probability. I was actually 20% chance of survival. I was a stage four with the cancer, and I was lying in bed one night. I thought 20% chance of survival is not too bad. Then I thought, crumbs, that's actually like having a gun with eight bullets and Eight chambers and having six bullets and two of the Russian roulette with the odds dramatically stacked against you. But then there's something called your reticular activating system, and it's what allows information into your mind. And my reticular activating system started working in a negative, so I started noticing all of these things on the news about people dying from cancer. I'd noticed highlighted articles which would highlight themselves to my focus about people dying, and I thought, and I caught myself one day, and I thought, hey, I teach this stuff. And I immediately retrained my focus. Then different information came in because this is how your mind works. So I was in hospital, and I was absolutely – the belief I had that I would survive could not have been stronger. I was 100% certain that I would survive. My beliefs were that powerful, and I believe this is what actually kept me alive. And I used to actually sit in the chemotherapy wards, and you're with about another 20 people. It's not a private room. You're with another 20 people. You're all wired up to drips, And I used to sit there and weep for other people because i was so concerned about them because i was going to be fine so my attention wasn't even on me it was on other people then one day i had this really profound experience and it was one of the most beautiful things that ever happened to me and i was sitting next to this young girl she was 26 years of age and her name was annie and we were both sitting there looking like a couple of extras from an auschwitz movie because we were we'd lost three or four stone in weight our eyes were sunken we were black around the eyes we had no hair and i said how are you going to beat this and she said, oh, um, with positive thinking. But well, I could see she was mouthing the words, but she didn't believe it. You know? And belief is the key. I, I, I can't drum that into people enough. Belief is the key. And I said, look. And I started to explain to her how beliefs work. And she started to weep. And I thought, oh, God, I've upset her now. <laughs> and I said, what's, what's the matter? She says, you know, what you're saying makes perfect sense. She said, and if you told me this three months ago, she said, I, was, I would have absolutely believed what you're telling me. And I said, so what happened to change that? She said, she she told me her story. She said, well, she said, I believed with all of my heart that I was going to beat this. She said, I had multiple tumors in the top half of my body. She said, well, I believed I was going to beat this because I'm 26 years of age. All I ever wanted was a man to love me, a cottage in a country, and children to love. That's been my goal since I was four or five years of age. She said, "And I needed it to happen so badly. I didn't believe that anything other than this was going to happen. And I confounded my doctors because all of my tumors shrunk. 80% of them disappeared, and the two that were left were only 10% of their original size, and my doctors couldn't believe it. And then she started to cry again, and I I probed a bit further. I said, well, what happened? She says, well, I was in here three or four months ago getting chemotherapy, and the nurse came up to me, and she said, how are you today? And she said, I'm absolutely fantastic. She said, I'm going to have this beaten in no time. She said, and I said, so what's wrong? What happened? She says, well, the nurse leant over to me with this really pitiful look, and she took my, my little hand in hers, and she put it in the bottom. She cupped it on both of her hands, one on top, one on the bottom. And she looked at me straight in the eye, and she said, don't get your hopes up, love. You have a very aggressive form of cancer. And she said, she must have been right, she said, because immediately within weeks my, my tumors had all returned. She said, so I realized that the belief that I had was false. I said, look, your belief was not false. I said, I do not believe that your belief was false. I be- now you what you have to understand, and I explained how beliefs work, I said she's an authority figure in your life. A nurse is an authority figure, so you respect what she says and believe what she says because of the position that she's in. And because you accepted what she said as truth, it became true for you. Because this is something that's fundamental in beliefs. People give you can only give you an opinion. They can't give you a belief. But if you accept it as the truth, it becomes true for you. Now in Annie's case, she accepted this as the truth. So what happened was she, She believed that the cancer would return, so it did. So I started working with her on the visualization exercises, and and I didn't see her again. Now, what happens is when you're in a chemotherapy ward, you don't take names and telephone numbers from people. You just don't, because it's it's because we all know what's going to happen to a lot of people. So, and it's detrimental to your own recovery if you phone somebody up and they say, "Oh, sorry, they passed away last week." So, I never heard from this this girl again until a year ago last Christmas, and she traced me through the hospital. Um, they didn't want to hand out my information to her about where I was, but because she told them the story, so they gave her my telephone number. And I got this phone call off of her just a year before last Christmas. And she was so excited. And I said, hey, how are you doing? She says, oh, she says, I had to call you. She says, it's absolutely amazing. She says, listen, I'm in remission. 80% of my tumors have gone. I've only got two left. They're only a fraction of the size. But what I really wanted to tell you was that I've just got engaged. We're getting married next July. And we put a deposit down on the country, on a little cottage in the country, and we're planning on starting a family. And it was just everything that I believed. Had come to manifest in this young woman, but it could be—it could be—it could be very different. Now the irony was that the, this was the—I go on to so this was the most beautiful experience I ever had. That was only part of the story, because as I was chatting to her about this, a different nurse, not the one that told her this thing months ago, a different nurse was changing the catheter in my arm and renewing and renewing the drip. So she heard me talking to this to this Annie, and she walked around to every single other patient in the room and she's pointing at me telling him and all of these people one by one were picking up their drips and walking over to me so i had all of these people surrounding my bed with their drips you know some of them with very severe cancer and I'm giving a seminar on belief <laughs> from my bed to uh, about 18, 20 people around my bed. It was the most unbelievable thing that I'd ever experienced. But, but it was, um, and I had tears in my eyes the whole time because I could see as they were getting it, you could see their faces change and their physiology would change. And, and people, people say, well, what if it was false hope you were giving them? No, you're not. There's no such thing as false hope. I've sat with members of my family and I've seen them take their last breath. And it occurred to me many years ago when I watched a member of my family die, I was holding their hand, and they were dying in bed, and I saw them take their last breath. And it was in that moment I realized that that is when there is no hope. It's only when you take your last breath that hope is finished. As long as long The old saying is, when there's, as long as there is life, there is hope, is absolutely true, and I believe that with all of my heart. As long as you're breathing, yeah. there's a chance. In, in the case of cancer, for example, there isn't a single cancer in the world that hasn't been overcome by somebody. So why not you, if it's you? You know, why not? You know, but but, it, but belief, as I said, belief is the driving force in life. It's the driving force in everything that we do. It's also the driving force in health. So the belief has to come first before everything else that you do in life. There's there's just no two ways about it.
0: Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And, of course, disclaimer, we're not giving medical advice. We're neither us or doctors. We don't play them on the Internet. So Mark is telling uh, uh, it just, what has happened to him and the the people who he came in contact with. Um, One thing I want to follow up on is you said that, you know, you talked about how this girl was just mouthing these beliefs. They weren't really true beliefs. So can you give some tips on how you can move from just saying this stuff over and over again to really anchoring it in your belief? How does a thought then become an actual belief?
1: Well, first of all, what you've got to understand is positive positive thinking on its own is pointless. Okay? I I, I keep repeating this, and and I am for deliberate reasons when I say belief is the driving force of everything. Positive thinking on its own is pretty much pointless because if the belief isn't in place, every time you say something positive, the little voice inside you says, well, that's not going to happen, Winnie. You keep saying you're going to do this, but you're not going to. So you're just arguing with yourself. But it's only you have to change the belief first. Now, there's a multitude of ways to change beliefs, but I'll share the most powerful one which works for me. Now, when you go to bed at night, your brain cycles slow down between 8 and 12 cycles per second, which Mm -hmm. is the alpha cycle. And that is when you can actually communicate with your subconscious mind directly. Okay? because when you're in your normal waking state, what happens is that you're, you've got conscious interference. So you say, right, I'm going to do this, and the little voice inside you says, no, you're not. You always say you're going to do that, and you never do. Right. But when you actually do this as you're going off to sleep, your brain waves slow down so slow, and you're, what you're actually doing is you're communicating with your subconscious mind directly. Now, you can't, your subconscious mind is what changes things. You have to, to, put, to imprint on your subconscious mind or nothing happens whatsoever. You just run the old tapes of your preconditioning that you've had all through your life. So what you're actually doing, if you just relax as you go to bed, the final thoughts are the most important because this is when you're communicating with the subconscious. And what you should do is visualize. So visualize yourself doing the thing that you want to do that you haven't been able to do so far, and visualize it intensely. This is what I was doing as a as a as a child when I visualized my wife in the bed. And you know, I married the most the most beautiful woman in the world. So you know, this was a vision of mine. It wasn't intentional. You know. Beauty is only skin deep, but she's as beautiful on the inside as well. But this is the the whole point of it. So so you have to visualize deeply with all of your senses, smell, hear, taste, feel everything, and see it in your mind's eye as you're going off to sleep. Now, your mind cannot tell the difference between something, your subconscious mind, sorry, cannot tell the difference between something that is vividly imagined or real. It accepts it as real. So, every, so actually, when you think about it, when you're having all of these negative thoughts, what you're actually doing is creating memories of things that never happened. Mark Twain once said, "Some terrible things ha- have happened in my life, some of which actually happened, and that's what he was talking about." <laughs> because we're actually storing. All of these things, these catastrophes that we're making up in our mind as memories, and they never even happened. Right. So this is why you get to a stage in your life where you become cranky and pessimistic is because if you're a habitual negative thinker, eventually that's who you become because that's who you're, That's what you're doing. You're impressing in your subconscious mind that this is the reality you live in. You can have two people walking down the street, and one will be thinking, oh, why is, why is life so terrible? And the person walking next to them thinking, it's a joy to be alive. It's the same street. It's the same things that they're watching, looking all around them, but it's the story that we tell ourselves. And another thing you need to be aware of is that people accept thoughts as real. People think something, and they think it's real. So you have a thought thinking, I'm useless, or I'm ugly, or this and that. It's a thought. It's not real. You're just thinking it. But a lot of people accept them as the truth. But what they should be doing is, is picking what they want and dismissing what they don't want because they're just thoughts and they mean anything. They just come along and you can either latch onto them or let them go. If it's negative, let it go. If it's positive, build on it and dwell on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great, great advice, and I'm going to just toss in here something that Sheila Stevenson, who is a trauma relief coach, mentioned to me in another interview on the show, and I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes for this one. She talked about how these things that we play in our heads, really they're tapes, right, they're actually the the belief system from somebody else the opinions of somebody else right we didn't we don't we're not born and go i'm ugly i'm stupid and i'm worthless we've been told this and we have the power to reject that belief that statement because it didn't originate with us mm-hmm. so i thought that was a really powerful thing that she said and and i think it fits really well with exactly what you went over here that you have to recognize that wherever you pick that baggage up it's not yours it's the person who projected that onto you who had their own emotional baggage and they're just sharing it uh, uh, as they go through their own lives so at some point i think each of us has to, again, I think it comes down to being aware, right, being aware of that we're playing these tapes and then saying, I'm not, I'm not taking this baggage on the bus where I'm going. I'm leaving this behind on the, on the platform, and I'm moving forward without it, unencumbered, and, and choosing our own beliefs. And, yes, choosing wisely, right, making these positive statements and then truly adopting them.
1: Really. Can I, I elaborate on that slightly? Because you said something which, which I talk about, and, but I want to make it slightly user-friendly, more user-friendly. Because what she said is exactly right. Now, going back to the imprint period between birth and seven years of age, that's when the bulk of mm-hmm. who you are is put into you. You're literally programmed into you. Everything right. you hear, see, and do, you take in and internalise. Now, you're born a blank canvas with endless possibilities in front of you okay now the imprint period between birth and seven years of age this is where the problem is because you're a blank canvas but the trouble is that somebody else is holding the paint and the brushes Okay. so you're not creating something yourself you're being told something now because we do not reason you know you didn't challenge your parents between the age of naught and seven you didn't say well actually dad I don't think you're right there if you ever looked at it this way <laughs> If if your mother or father or teacher or an authority figure, which is anybody that has a direct influence in your life, uh, it could be a friend, uh, a parent of, of a friend, or a teacher. These are your, the main ones when you're young. If they say something to you, God has spoken as far as you're concerned. As a child, whatever your mother or father said or an authority figure said, you accepted it as the truth. So if you picked up a recorder at school or a musical instrument and the teacher put their hand over the ears and said, Oh, my God, Winnie, you haven't got a musical note in your body. Just please don't ever pick up a musical instrument again. No one deserves to have that done to them. John, you were, and Now, at that moment, she's given you an opinion, okay? But she's an authority figure in your life. So if you say, um, I reject that, it's just an opinion. But you don't because you don't know how to reject it. So you're, somebody's telling you something you accept as fact. Once you accept it as fact, it becomes true for you. Now, the trouble is, growing up as an adult, you know, that you're saying change our beliefs. But the trouble is with that, we aren't aware that we have them because they're subconscious by nature. Mm-hmm. So we're not actually, you don't say, oh, that's something I'm not doing. I must have a limiting belief in that right. area. Most of the people listening to this interview between you and I have never heard of the concept of limiting beliefs anyway. So how can you change something that you've never heard of? It's just not possible. Because what we do is we express a limiting belief by avoidance. So if I said, to, I might say to you, we might be friends living in the same town. Let's say we live, but now I was driving Colorado. And I'll say to you, Winnie, do you fancy coming up skiing with me for the weekend? And you might say to me, oh, no, Mark, thanks for asking, but I'm not a skier. Now, I would say, fair enough, and move on to somebody else. But let's say I probed a little bit further, and I said to you, why did you have a bad experience? Did you break your leg skiing or something? You'd say, oh, no, no, I've never skied in my life, but I just know I'm not a skier. Now, that's a limiting belief, but it actually takes the probing to actually work out where your limiting beliefs are. Now, it's really not hard. You think, well, how do I find out where my limiting beliefs are? Not that difficult. All you've got to do is look at the areas of your life that aren't working. That's where your limiting beliefs are. Uh, The things that you procrastinate doing, the things that you put off doing, those are where your limiting beliefs are. So they're quite easy to identify. But if you've never heard about these concepts before, there's no reason for you to look for them because you're looking for something you've never heard of. So it's by consequence, it's just not possible to do. So hopefully one of the biggest things that will come from this interview today is hopefully a lot of people will hear this, and they will become aware of the concept, something that they've never, ever come across before.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, and I think that even though people might be familiar with the concept, to equate it at this level and recognize, oh, my God, that's it. You know, we talk about, I think, some of these concepts without really truly nailing the definition and being completely clear, and I think we can tend to dismiss them. But I think you've done a really great job today of explaining them, talking about how to identify them, and then really recognizing that they are holding us back, but it doesn't have to be that way. So I really appreciate not just your time, but your openness and honesty in sharing your own story and really giving practical, concrete information that can make a difference in somebody's life, I, I, which is part of why I wanted to have you on the show. So I'm so glad that you were able to make time for me. And I could go on for days with you, Mark. I just, uh, you know, I really feel a connection with you, and, and I think your information is so valuable. Can you just take a, a minute or two to, to share a, where people can go to learn more about you, the work you do, and to to get some information about how you work with them?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I deliver keynote speeches and seminars and workshops. I speak for companies. So if you have a company that you think would be into this kind of information or you think it would benefit, benefit your uh, work colleagues, you can contact me in a multitude of ways. Uh, my email address is markbakerspeaks at gmail.com. My website address is www.markbakerspeaks.co.uk. You can find my Facebook page, which is Mark Baker International. If you can find me, as a friend, find me aside from that, you can have me as a friend. I'm more than happy to. Um, now, what I do is I do a lot, a lot of coaching. Now, the kind of stuff that we have, it's – What we're really doing here today is we're educating people onto a concept of something, but they're going to need more than that because you need to interact to actually get these things to work properly. If somebody wants to coach with me, I'm going to do something very special for anybody who contacts me as a result of this interview. Normally, I I charge $300 per session when I do a coaching session, and if somebody wants unlimited email access to me, that's $300 per month also, so that's $600 per month. But what I'm going to do today, if anybody wants First of all, I'm going to offer them a free session, so that we can meet and and say, Thanks. well, yeah, I can see this would work as as a benefit. To say thank you for having me on your show, that there's going to be a free session for everybody that listens listens to you, um, to Thank the you. things you put out. So they can contact me by Facebook or email and we can arrange it and do it on Zoom or Skype or whatever. And it's, there's no charge, there's no obligation. And with 30, 40 minutes we'll chat together, which will probably be an hour because this was only supposed to be half an hour. And about <laughs> We've an hour. gone on
0: a bit, yeah, <laughs> yeah. sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is fine because I could talk about this all day. Uh, if somebody decides then at that point, yes, this is something I'd really want to engage in. Uh, I do, I'm doing a special price for a whole years of coaching once a month, which would be $1,250. I'm also going to give the free unlimited email access to me, which is normally another $3,000. That will be for free. I'm going to throw that in. So what I'm trying to do is give this access to this valuable information, and I'm trying to make it as easy to access as possible by making it as cheap as possible. Um, now, there's there's no value on this. I mean, what I actually talk about and what I teach I believe is the basis of everything. I'm not saying that from an ego point of view. I didn't make this stuff up. I've studied it and I've learned it. But I've had to go through a lot of rubbish to get to where I am to find out the stuff that actually works. Um, I I got so frustrated when I was younger. I used to go to seminars and I'd learn all this great information that sounded great but didn't work. And I think life's too short to spend your time meandering through and spending 10 years. It took me 10 years to, to actually get to a point where I had the right information. So this will save you a 10 year learning curve of finding out for yourself. So I'd very much like to, to do that with people and, and that free session is the way for people to identify, yes, this is something for me. or well, no, it's not, and there's no obligation whatsoever.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so very much. So be sure if you contact Mark that you let him know that you heard it, uh, heard his episode here on the Courageous Entrepreneur Show and that that you connected with him through me. Thanks so very, very much. It's been great having you, and uh, I know we've shared a lot of great information that folks are going to appreciate today.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure, Winnie, I'm so glad to share this information with your listeners.
0: Well, I hope you found that helpful. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll leave a great review, a great rating, or a comment on the platform where you're enjoying this. And if you felt the information was helpful, please share it with your colleagues, clients, and contacts across all of your social media platforms. Be sure to join my community at winnieanderson.com where I'll send you episodes as they come out along with information, tips, and resources to help you break free from the chains of the past and break through to achieve your goals, including positioning and pre-selling yourself as a trusted advisor to your best clients. Okay, so your reflection exercise. One of the things that strikes me about people like Mark is their ability to see adversity that they faced as a gift. I can tell you it's, it's hard to do, but it's important for you to be able to use those challenges as a platform for achievement rather than as a box to hide in. So reflect on how you describe what happened to you. Do you talk about it being luck? Are you still caught up in the sadness and sorrow of it? And your action step. I want you to write down all of the horrible things that happened to you and I want you to write down how those things limit you. Then I want you to make note of all the things you feel that you can't do or that you do that are negative and that you tie to what happened to you. Then it's time for you to think about that from the opposite side of things. I want you to really look at something that was negative on your list And I want you to identify the positive that came out of that. I'll give you a a simple example from my life. So a simple one could be that, you know, maybe you were a latchkey kid. Maybe you came home to an empty house. You know, the negative of that could be that you were alone. But the positive in that is you became independent and you could take care of yourself. You learned to prioritize your work, and you got your homework done, and then were able to go out and play when your parent or your guardian came home. Now, believe me, I know this is hard. It was easy for me to see the accident that I was in, the car accident, as a gift, but it's taken me my entire life to focus on the benefits of growing up the way I did and to accept and feel good about the the fact that I couldn't be me without all those experiences. I think of it like the way beautiful gems are made. You know, diamonds take tons of pressure to make. Pearls are actually made from what started out as an irritating grain of sand. And other gems, they have to be rolled around in a tumbler and buffed to a shine, but they're bouncing around inside of that tumbler the whole time. There's tremendous freedom in embracing what you went through. You don't have to be happy that you went through it, but you must find a way to make peace with it and to make something good come from it. I think that's really our great challenge. Now, if you'd like to get support to stay focused and achieve your goals, visit my website at winnieanderson.com slash achievers. You'll learn about the Achievers Club there, and you'll be able to see if that's possibly right for you, and you'll see when the next group begins. Thanks, and I'll catch up with you in a new episode soon. And remember, don't let the past hijack your future.